What's going on, everyone? Welcome to episode 41 of the Data Driven Strength Podcast. Today, myself and Zach are going to be discussing our most recent training takeaway newsletter, uh, which was titled, Should Strength Athletes Do Bulk and Cut Cycles? So we're going to dive into some of the research on uh, kind of the, the pros and cons of bulk and cut cycles versus um, long-term weight maintenance. Um, if you are not already subscribed to the Training Takeaway newsletter, that'll be the first link in the description of this podcast or video if you're on YouTube. So make sure you're subscribed there. Um, also, um, kind of one of the reasons I wanted to dive into this research and, and uh, write this uh, takeaway is that we also have um, an upcoming course called Individualized Nutritional Periodization. Um, and the, that will be the second link in the description. A lot more to come on that soon. Um, but if you are interested, go ahead and, and fill out your information at that link. That'll make sure that you are the first to hear about it and you also get the best possible deal. But again, we'll kind of put a pin in that for now. A lot more to come in the coming weeks. Um, before we dive into a pretty long segment uh, discussing this most recent newsletter, um, and to be clear, there'll, there'll be you know some unique information here. So if you also read the newsletter, there'll be some good stuff in here and hopefully some good conversation as well. Um, before that, we'll do a little bit of a warm-up question. Um, so I'll read Zach into this one, and then we'll go back and forth for a few minutes, and then we'll, we'll get into the main part of this episode. Um, so we got this from a few different people, um, and it, it's just kind of to the effect of, of our thoughts on the term, quote-unquote, progressive overload, um, and essentially whether this causes more problems than good. So what do you think, Zach? Uh, net positive, net negative? I think this definitely depends on the context in what you're asking, because kind of have two ways of thinking about this. Uh, we were talking about our personal training experiences today, Josh, that makes me kind of hesitate my answer on this question because for people who don't know about some of the basic principles of training and stuff like that and working with more gen pop clients, I think understanding progressive overload and encouraging the, the habit of progression and to a sense maybe potentially overly aggressively chasing that might be a good thing um, in, in some aspects, obviously within reasonable constraints, but I think that's like a good habit to instill in yourself of like, that's what I'm trying to do when I'm in the gym is I'm trying to progress a little bit in some way from the previous session. Now that said, as we've discussed multiple times, but I think, you know, still to this day, I think Brian Miner has done an absolutely awesome job discussing this concept of the, the training session doesn't necessarily need to have something added to it to be stimulative and, and continue taking steps forward. Um, I can't recall the the very eloquent quote at the moment, but I'm sure you might have it off the top of your head. But basically, just because you're not increasing load or increasing reps or doing an additional set or de decreasing the rest time or all the ways people kind of describe progressive overload does not mean in any way that the session was wasted. It can still be stimulative and still can stimulate adaptation um, if you're not adding something. So I it, it's tough to say if it's overutilized. I, I, I think as you get more advanced, the mindset does need to shift in certain ways. And I, I don't think it necessarily needs to shift your mindset coming into a session. I still think that should be progressive for the most part, but I just think the ability and the maturity to realize when you don't have it and not to take um, dumb risks is ultimately probably the, the skill that adapts over time and um, advanced individuals probably get used to. But I, I, I will say I have had the slight opinion change that for things like curls and stuff like that, I think I actually am on the side of being too aggressive with that kind of thing, like trying to do something to progress, even if that's at the expense of overshooting every now and again, just because I think it's easy to do same reps, same load for a while. Um, and so, yeah, I think it kind of depends on the, the exercise you're talking about, the goal you're talking about, um, and obviously the individual. Um, but I don't even know if that was uh, squarely answering the question. So what do you think? No, I, I, I agree with you. Um, I think just the general take home is that once you understand it and like once you properly conceptualize it and Brian Miner has, you know, d deserves all the credit there for, for, I know he definitely shifted my mind mindset at the time. And I, uh, a lot of, a lot of people like to use his quotes and not, uh, <laughs> and not put his name to it. So we'll, we'll definitely not do that here. Um, but once you understand, I think it's definitely a net positive. Um, especially on kind of the general population level. Uh, so I, I see my, one of my uncles once or twice a year and he, 
he is he is the like most enthusiastic person about lifting that I'm I might have ever met, but he's he's not like a, a nerd about it, but he's just very enthusiastic about it. And I, I every time I ask him, he's still doing the same exact thing, right? Uh, I think it's three sets of fifty on push-ups, three sets of twenty on dips, and I think three sets of thirty on on chin-ups. Uh, every single time he doesn't he hasn't progressed it for years. I, I've tried to have the conversation, um, but. And he, he gets juiced up about it. But, you know, next Christmas, he's he's still doing the same thing. Um, so I think, you know, if, if I could get him to really understand uh, progressive overload, he'd probably benefit from it. So I think the uh, the general population thing is 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 massive because um, it's probably comes pretty intuitive to most listeners of this podcast at this point. But on a general population level, I don't think that's super intuitive right off the bat. Now, for more advanced trainees, uh, I will definitely just echo what you said, Zach. Um, I think I think it's good to have a progression mindset. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, and you should expect to make progress in some capacity, essentially until you're proven otherwise on that day. Now, as you get as you become more and more advanced, there's more and more days where you are being proven otherwise, and in my opinion, the key is just being really good and really objective at knowing when you're being proven otherwise. Um, and when you kind of need to auto-regulate downwards, because again, once you have that good understanding that Brian Miner really kind of uh, brought to the forefront is that uh, it's not that you're proactively adding things in order to force adaptations. You are reactively adding load or adding reps uh, in order to um, kind of keep up with your adaptations and provide provide the same relative stimulus. So we could, you know, get into the the weeds in terms of, um, you know, the relative versus the absolute stimulus. When when is it a good time to manipulate each of those? Um, but that's probably a whole nother podcast in and of itself. Um, so Zach, unless you have anything else to add, just maybe provide a brief intro on the the main topic for today. Yeah, the only thing to add is five pounds, but other than that, we'll uh, keep rolling here. So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, this is a good time we can kind of roll into the the main discussion of today's podcast. So, Josh, you did an awesome job kind of going through um, multiple lines of evidence. And I think kind of the word you use in your, in your newsletter that I really liked was triangulate. Um, and, and kind of try to take these multiple areas. I of edited research. that word out at the, at the last, oh, minute, by the man, I'm not, I caught it on the last read and that's unfortunate. <laughs> um, sorry listeners. Well, I liked it. Um, it's probably why I got uh, omitted, uh, based on our editing process, generally speaking, but anyway, um, yeah, that, that was one of the things I really liked about the approach that you took with this was kind of taking findings and research from multiple areas that are tangential to the ultimate question that you were asking of should strength athletes uh, kind of structure their nutrition in bulk and cut cycles, or should they try to leverage recomposition? I think um, that was a really awesome approach, and I'm excited to kind of hear you dig into that a little bit more, and I'll uh, pepper you with some questions as we go. Cool. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll get into those multiple lines of evidence here in a little bit, but I kind of want to set the stage, and then we'll we'll eventually circle around to that. So. Ultimately, be, before we get into this, um, I think we should just address that this isn't something we talk about a ton. Like we we, we haven't really talked about this in the past. We, we, we might have done so in, in passing here and there. But um, I think over the last six to 12 months, this is just something that's just kind of been like brewing under the surface to some degree. And obviously, uh, Jake, who's one of our coaches, uh, deserves a lot of credit here for, for anything I talk about, because um, he's kind of our man in terms of nutritional uh, sports nutrition related stuff. Um, and maximizing strength and hypertrophy, um, you know, or, or, or uh, strength, uh, nutritional protocols to maximize strength and hypertrophy. Again, Jake's kind of our man. Um, and it's just become more and more clear to me that this is something we should really care about. Um, and in my experience, just kind of reflecting on it, properly handling these variables and um, not just kind of taking like a hand wavy approach to it is a really, really good predictor of progress. Um, and just overall, if your kind of nutritional environment, if you will, is not permissive to good things happening in your training, you can you can have all the fancy X's and O's that we like to talk about in this podcast. Um, but that kind of goes out the window, honestly, if, again, your nutritional environment is not permissive to that and you're not being, uh, again, very purposeful. And also something that we 
are really interested in from a research perspective and also from what we do here uh, within our company is, is individualization. And when th this is one of those variables that if it's, if it's not dialed in, the individualization kind of goes out the window to some degree. Um, and ultimately, we just spend a lot of time micromanaging these training variables and we talk about it all the time. And this just generally deserves some more attention. Um, again, we're, we're probably never going to fully specialize on, on this, but I think it's something for us to kind of circle back to here and there um, in the content we put out. Um, now, ultimately, in terms of why we specifically or, or why I specifically wanted to write this newsletter um, and kind of frame it around this uh, bulk and cut cycles versus long-term maintenance uh, is that I've kind of noticed, especially over the last couple of years, that the people that that you know uh, come to us, um, they're starting to not view bulk and cut cycles as kind of the default approach. I think that's very much the default approach in kind of the bodybuilding world, um, or, or that's at least my impression. But I think kind of within the powerlifting sphere for strength athletes, that's becoming less and less the case, or at least that's been my observation. Um, and I think that's um, for two potential reasons. Uh, the first is that um, there's been kind of this idea that's become more and more popular over recent years that muscle growth doesn't help strength. So for bodybuilders, if they're going through these bulk cut cycles, um, you know, they're doing so to maximize uh, muscle growth and ultimately body composition. But within the strength world, um, there's been more and more kind of debate as to whether that actually matters for strength. Um, and we're going to kind of put a pin in that and not really talk about that any further and just say that we definitely think it's key and probably one of the best predictors of long-term strength progress. Um, but that leads me to the second reason I think that um, less and less people are viewing bulk and cut cycles, um, as the default is that the kind of idea that body recomposition, which is the simultaneous gain of muscle mass or lean body mass and loss of fat mass can occur. And it can occur in trained individuals. And again, we're going to kind of talk about the, you know, efficacy of that approach and the pros and cons here in a little bit. So to frame our discussion, I want to do it around long-term body weight changes. So for the rest of this, this podcast episode, I want you to just kind of conceptualize this in terms of years, not necessarily weeks or like, a, you know, a 10 week training study. This is just because it gets really complicated when you think about these shorter timeframes, especially. Um, so like, for example, with the different um, energy contents of a given mass of different tissues in the body. Again, things just get tricky um, because you can technically be in an energy surplus, for example, but lose weight due to recomp. Um, again, I'm going to kind of uh, hold off on the, the details there because, but, but that's just an example of why things are tricky. And I want to frame this around long-term body weight changes, i.e. years. So let's, uh, you know, kind of frame this around two different options. Um, before I get to those options, just a couple of quick caveats. Um, the first is that we're going to put weight class restriction aside. Again, this is largely just kind of a thought experiment and to give you guys idea fuel for, for your own um, kind of approach and or your clients approaches. Um, you know, I was kind of reflecting on, I was like, okay, you know, how does this apply for each of the athletes I work with? Um, and a lot of them, you know, might not do what I would recommend on paper just because of, of weight class restrictions. So I just want to acknowledge that up front and say, let's just kind of put that to the side for this thought experiment. Another caveat is I'm assuming you're past kind of that novice stage of, you know, putting on those first, whatever, 10 to 30 pounds of muscle, and you've kind of gained that weight. That's it's, it's almost required unless you're starting at a very high body fat percentage to gain some weight when you first start resistance training, because you're gaining so much muscle mass so quickly. So I'm going to assume that we're talking about intermediate to advanced lifters past those initial gains that, that come really easy and probably necessitate uh, body weight gain. So our two options are very simple. The first option is just long-term body weight maintenance. So if you weigh 200 pounds, um, staying at 200 pounds for whatever, three years. The second option is to do bulk and cut cycles. So let's say a 10 month bulk followed by a two month cut. And then you repeat that, uh, three times. So same time point, same ending body weight as well as that long-term maintenance period. So, 
Um, I'll go ahead and dive into that first option, that long-term maintenance option, um, and kind of talk about the research and some of the considerations there, and then we'll, we'll compare and contrast. But I'll pause here and see if you have any anything to add or any questions, Zach, before we keep going. No, oh, man, I think keep rolling. Cool. Okay. So um, again, option one, long-term weight maintenance. What can we kind of get from the research? The first thing to state up front is that it absolutely can happen in trained individuals. So there's a really, really good review paper from uh, Bearcat and colleagues from 2020. We'll have that linked below uh, as well. And this, I think, was a little bit counterintuitive for a lot of people because bulk and cut cycles maybe in the past were, were especially popular. Um, people just kind of assumed, okay, you're either, you know, in a bulk and you're gaining muscle and gaining fat, or you're in a cut and you're losing fat, potentially even losing some muscle as well. Um, but this whole, uh, concept of body recomposition kind of came to the forefront and I think was popularized for good reason from this paper, uh, indicating that it can happen. It often does happen and it can happen in trained individuals. So that begs the question of why might this happen? And ultimately, you kind of need to think of energy beyond just like the acute energy balance from nutritional intake. Um, so just because you're not in a dramatic energy surplus does not mean that energy availability is too low to support muscle growth because you have endogenous energy sources in the form of body fat, right? So we know that muscle growth, the process of actually accruing muscle tissue is energy intensive. I, 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 I believe I list out a little bit of, of some of the considerations there in the newsletter, um, but ultimately you, you need to fuel that. Um, and it's like, okay, if I'm not in an energy surplus, then where does that come from? Well, it comes from body fat or at least, at least partially. So energy availability can be sufficient as long as you're not like stage lean as a bodybuilder in order to fuel that process. So it can happen, but I'm most interested in whether this is more or less effective in the long term compared to uh, that second scenario or that second option I mentioned before, which is bulk and cut cycles. So let's get into option number two a little bit. Um, and ultimately, this would make it a lot easier if we had some direct evidence in trained individuals to compare bulk and cut cycles to long-term weight maintenance or kind of this quote-unquote recomp approach. Um, but in the absence of that uh, data, I'm going to draw on four other lines of research for some clues. The first line of evidence I want to look at is from a study by Rosnick and colleagues from 2002. And this is actually a study design, basically exactly what we would want to see. They had one group at about maintenance and they had one group that was in an energy surplus. If I recall correctly, that group in an energy surplus was given uh, some sort of supplement that was like uh, an additional 2000 calories per day. And uh, they were resistance training, which again is what we want to see. The group that was at maintenance, they saw an increase of 2.1% on average of fat-free mass. Um, and the group in an energy surplus gained more than double the fat-free mass and did not gain a significant amount of fat mass. So again, this kind of seems like a slam dunk, but these subjects were untrained. So I don't think it's fair to kind of extrapolate those findings to trained individuals. I think it's just a, a kind of a different ball game. But nonetheless, I view this at least as a proof of concept that an energy surplus does support muscle growth. But again, it's not the same ballgame in trained individuals. So we should take that with a grain of salt and just view it as one of our lines of evidence to triangulate, as Zach said, uh, into this overall broader picture. The next line of evidence, um, I'm going to draw on a study from, I believe it's Butchard and colleagues from 1990. So, so a pretty early study. Um, and it, it almost seems silly to mention this, but I think it's important just to kind of make sure we're all on the same page is that an energy surplus in isolation, so without resistance training, enhances muscle mass. So in other words, if you overfeed just sedentary people that aren't resistance training, they're going to gain some muscle mass. They're going to gain some, some fat-free mass in addition to, of course, gaining a good amount of fat mass. Um, so again, this is just kind of evidence that hey, more calories generally leads to an anabolic environment. And, and yes, some of that uh, anabolism is going to uh, fat mass, but some of it's also going to fat-free mass. So that's the second line of evidence. The third line of evidence is um, an interesting study, and it's actually kind of a, a six-year-long study. So the pre-testing measures were uh, six years earlier than the post-testing measures. 
And it was a study on 12 rugby players. Um, and, and the reason this study is helpful is that they reported um, individual data on changes in lean mass and fat mass. Um, they didn't outline the specific resistance training in the paper itself, but I'm assuming, you know, being rugby players, they were regularly resistance training. Um, and because they reported this individual data, what we can do that we can't do in a lot of these other studies is we can basically look at predictors, if you will, of what was the case in those individuals that gained the most muscle mass. So I basically just extracted the data. So I just extracted the, ch the percent changes in fat mass and the percent changes in lean mass from each of the 12 individuals and just ran a very basic correlation. And I provided this figure in the newsletter, but very simply, we see that those that, uh, on average, those that saw the greatest increase in lean mass also saw uh, a greater increase in fat mass. So this association was not statistically significant, but the R value was like 0.4 and change or something like that. So a moderate association between these two variables. Um, and I think this is a proof of concept that in a population that probably isn't doing like regularly cu regular cutting cycles, um, that, uh, you know, some body fat gain is probably necessary to maximize muscle growth. So I, I almost view this as like a six long bulking phase, if you will. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, there was some up and down to some degree, but in these individuals that probably aren't doing, you know, a proper cutting phase. Okay. We see that those that saw the greatest increase in muscle mass also saw the greatest increase in fat mass. That's an indication that, yeah, you probably need to be in an energy surplus in order to maximize muscle growth in the long term. So that's the third line of evidence. Uh, the fourth line of evidence is um, just an extrapolation from the research with energy deficits. So there's way more research on energy deficits, and I think that makes sense, um, given just you know the, the way that, that funding works and all that good stuff. Um, so a recent meta-analysis from Murphy and colleagues from 2022, they had a really nice figure kind of showing the relationship between the degree of energy deficit and the change in lean body mass. So I don't really care about the actual numbers here because specifically, if I recall correctly from this meta-analysis, the population wasn't very relevant to the average reader or the average listener here. Um, but what matters is just the general directionality. And we see very basically that um, as the magnitude of the energy deficit increases, um, muscle growth is attenuated and you eventually expect to see muscle loss. And I would just have a very, very hard time believing that if you kind of continued that relationship in the other direction, so into um, an energy surplus that grew and grew over time, that you wouldn't see that relationship continue. Um, and you wouldn't see that changes in lean body mass become more and more positive over time. So again, there's, there's these four lines of evidence in the, in, in, in the absence of direct evidence on trained individuals comparing long-term maintenance to uh, a bulk and, and cutting approach. Um, none of these are slam dunks, but from reading more or less what I think is most of the relevant research on the topic, I think we can kind of put this all together and say there's, there's enough vectors pointing in this direction to say that an energy surplus will absolutely aid in muscle growth. Um, and because our opinion, our interpretation of the research and our practical experience leads us to believe that more muscle growth is going to mean uh, greater strength potential, that spending a good amount of time in an energy surplus is generally going to be our recommendation. Zach, what do you think? One uh, quick question, then I'll give them a few more general comments. Do you remember off the top of your head which, uh, what age with their rugby players were? Uh, so they varied because I remember... Uh, in their analysis, there was some stuff on age kind of influencing uh, how much muscle mass they expected to see. But I don't know off the top of my head. All I can tell you, again, off the top of my head is that it varied a good amount. Okay. Yeah, because that's that's the one the one thing I imagine just for a project like that. I was just imagining logistics. I would imagine they were probably on their earlier uh, end of like the general resistance training training, which potentially yeah. has some... Uh, some some things to keep in mind there but like you said none of these are a slam dunk and that's not what you're proposing them as but it's just slight indications from multiple directions right. that like you said create a vector 
all kind so of the average the age was the average age was 24 and a half in that study oh okay okay that's that's older than i thought so i, I think that's so over a six-year period so you start when you're 18 or so um or is that the starting age um i'd imagine that's the starting age because yeah i'm, I'm like 85 percent sure that's the starting age okay that's that's even better then um so cool so that was just a quick question but yeah man i, I think uh overall i think um you did a great job outlining this stuff. And like you said, I think kind of looking at the multiple areas that you discussed, um, you can see how the arrows are kind of pointing in that direction. The, the only thing we were kind of discussing just a little bit before we got started um, that, that I was just, I always want to keep in mind with this kind of stuff is it is somewhat dependent when we're trying to finally talk about values such as fat mass that are slightly negative and it's a pretty precise um, obviously the conversation around measurement error becomes something you have to really strongly consider. And there's a whole nother rabbit hole. You could go down talking about the nuances of controlling for all those types of things. And that's not what we're here to talk about. It's just, I think that's another line of kind of just reasoning almost that helps to kind of swing you more so towards the neutral to positive effects of a, of a surplus when you're trying to put on lean mass, because you know, you'd have to consider the fact that some of these changes in fat mass or changes in lean mass, if they're pretty small in these studies that do show recomposition, depending on the way that the, the, everything was measured, some of that you could chalk up to measurement error. And if that's the case, maybe some of the recomp stuff is a little bit more, um, you just need to have a little bit more tempered conclusions almost on how frequently that occurs potentially. But that's just something I always keep in mind. But, but other than that, I think it's just maybe puts me on slightly more on the side of the fence of if I had to choose which one of these directions, if I was a betting person on which, which side of the aisle here, I think the, the energy surplus for a lot of the reasons you describe, and maybe some of just thinking about it and, and placing bets based on type of air and all that kind of stuff, I'd probably sit on the energy surplus side as well. Yeah, that's well said. Um, really quick. I just confirmed that. Yeah. 24 and a half was the starting age. Uh, yeah. So that, for that, for that cohort, uh, really, really interesting kind of, yeah. uh, paper to keep in mind that for sure yeah we, we could do a whole podcast on the limitations of that quick little regression i made <laughs> um so yeah it none of those are a slam dunk but i, I did the newsletter idea fuel <laughs> yeah no it, it, and and that's what i like about this format because some sharing some of that stuff like in, in shorter and shorter form on, on something like instagram you can't have you, you can't present it with caution or at least you can present it with caution, but it's, you know, often not interpreted with caution or, or, or interpreted as such. Um, but again, just presenting it as idea fuel and, and just as a line of evidence to to consider um, that I thought was pretty interesting, because I think when you when you think about this research on uh, kind of indicating that recomposition can happen. So just to be clear, what 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 that Bearcat uh, review did is they basically just said, hey, here are just general training studies here are the the average changes in lean mass and in fat mass and hey here are some studies we found that the lean mass goes up and the the fat mass goes down which is awesome i think that that review is totally awesome i think everyone should read it um but it does like just because something does happen does not mean you you ought to go that route or that you ought to do it uh, just because something is possible doesn't mean it's the the best way to go um, I think it's a great tool to have in your toolbox and, and to know when to use it um, or when to to kind of, uh, you know, aim for that outcome. But it doesn't mean it's the the best approach. Um, and to just kind of underscore what you said, Zach, about potential considerations with measurement error, um, they, they also mentioned this in the Bearcat paper as well a bit about some of the limitations of the uh, body composition measurements they, they used. Uh, or, or that they kind of reported in those studies that do report uh, recomposition. That could be a whole podcast in and of itself. But the way that I view it is like, yes, body re recomposition can happen, but I'm pretty dang confident from the research, even though there's not direct research, that an energy surplus will aid muscle growth. If you agree that uh, muscle growth is vital for long-term strength development, I would not put all my eggs in the recomposition basket, given the potential for a lot of times that potentially just being due to, to um, measurement error on, on a group average. Um, and that leads me to another point of why I wouldn't put all my eggs in, in that basket is the inter-individual variability 
in outcomes here. And I think some people will absolutely experience um, recomposition. And we've seen it in, in research all the time. Uh, we see it in our clients all the time. I actually, as of the time recording this, Jake posted a really good case study of one of his athletes that saw pretty dramatic body recomposition um, over like 16 weeks or something like that. So it definitely can happen, um, but it's just pretty variable of who it might happen to. Um, so there are a few times where um, it's going to be most likely. Uh, the first is if you are higher in body fat. Again, we talked about energy availability being a big factor here. So if you're higher in body fat, your your energy availability is generally not an issue. It's very hard from some of the individual data that I've seen to experience recomposition once you get below about 8% in body fat. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there's kind of a, a crossover there between uh, starting body composition or starting body fat and your ability to recomp. The second is if you're new to training, right? If, if you're untrained. Another one is if you, maybe you have been training a while, but you're not at your peak. So maybe you took a few months off, maybe you're, you're doing your PhD and uh, you're not totally at your peak and you're just trying to, just trying to get back to baseline. Um, another one is if you're- I was a low blow. What's that? I was a low blow. Was a low blow. No, man. It's all good. Um, the next is if you are, uh, your quote unquote environment um, is optimized. So if things are really, really dialed in on all fronts in terms of stress, sleep, all that good stuff, um, you're probably more likely to experience recomposition. Um, but another factor that I think is probably overlooked is just inherent individual differences. So there's a couple studies I want to draw on here. Uh, that lead to some indication that just some people are going to be more susceptible to body recomposition beyond those factors I just outlined. So the first is just from, it was just a couple sentences from a discussion from a paper by Antonio and colleagues from 2015. If I recall correctly, they didn't report the individual data, but they did mention this in the discussion that some participants simultaneously gained seven kilos of fat-free mass and lost four kilos of fat mass. So insane body recomposition, like that definitely happens. I want to say that up front, like that definitely happens. We've seen it um, in research. We've seen it in practice. Um, insane recomposition, right? But others in that same study with the same protocol lost fat-free mass and gained fat mass. So decomposition, if you will. So just insane inter-individual variability. Another study we can draw on is, uh, and I mentioned this study before, but this is just kind of a in a different context, is that one from Butchard and colleagues from 1990. And this was just an overfeeding study without resistance training. Um, but they, uh, the, the subjects were actually 12 uh, identical twins. And uh, they looked at body composition changes in, res uh, in response to, I believe it was 100 days of overfeeding of an additional 840 calories per day. And there was a ton of variability between twins. So between the 12 subsets of twins in terms of overall body weight increases and also kind of the ratio of um, fat mass to fat-free mass. Uh, there's a ton of variability between sets of twins, but within sets of twins, there was way less variability. So from my understanding of their stats, the, the variability between twins was about three times greater than the variability within sets of twins. So it, this indicates that there's a strong genetic component to your ability to recomp. And honestly, this really kind of fit, fits well with uh, just practical observations. Pretty high responders to training in my experience. And you can probably think of some well-known people off the top of your head that have been at the same body weight for a very long time and experienced recomposition. Though that, that might be because of some of those genetic factors. Uh, whereas other individuals, for whatever reason, might not be as susceptible to it and almost necessitate kind of like a, a bulk and cut cycle, uh, cycling approach in order to see meaningful changes in body recomposition. And I'd say if there's a takeaway from this podcast and from this newsletter, that's probably the biggest one is that there's like, don't expect someone else's experience, uh, someone else's experiences to be this, like, uh, for you to experience the same thing, right? Um, very, very clear, uh, just in the research in general, the large inter-individual variability. And I don't think there's any reason we would expect for kind of this recomposition phenomenon to be an exception. Um, so individualization on this front is huge. 
Um, I, I put this at the end of the article and I, uh, this is very straightforward, but I think it kind of gets my, pro- my point across is that you can simply test the waters to see if you're kind of one of these people that is, you know, gifted or if you will, in terms of experiencing recomposition is you can just test the waters. So what you can do is you can try out an energy surplus. So try out kind of like a proper bulking phase for three to six months and see how much muscle you gain. If you are completely satisfied with the muscle growth you experienced, then you might not need the surplus. So next, just go ahead and hang out at maintenance for a while and see how that goes. Because let's say you do test out the waters in this this fashion. You try out an energy surplus for three to six months and you are not satisfied with the muscle growth you gained. It's highly unlikely that removing that energy surplus will do anything but attenuate muscle growth. Right. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Like you're not going to, you're probably not going to get better muscle growth from uh, a maintenance approach, but you might get similar again for certain individuals. So uh, I think individualization is key and this should just be viewed as like, you know, a general conceptual framework for trial and error for yourself or, or, or individuals you work with. I think the one piece of context there that you obviously are implying, I just want to make it explicitly clear is this is with relatively similar training habits, I would imagine. Um, if you're going from, you know, barely training and you're not satisfied with your muscle growth and you're still only training once a week, the surplus maybe isn't going to do a ton in that case. So this, I, I just, I think that's probably a, just an additional piece of context. Like once you're training, training consistently, training with an overall programming strategy that makes sense for your goals, then what Josh says applies and the kind of the trial and error there probably should happen with a relatively fixed training approach. Yeah, for sure. That kind of assumes that training and just general life environment is held constant throughout that experiment. Um, that, that does lead me to another point is that I kind of view an energy surplus as like an insurance policy, um, based on the research. And I kind of mentioned, uh, the factors that might lead to someone experiencing recomposition is, one of those factors is just having kind of your your quote unquote environment dialed in, right? You're able to tr- train a, at a consistent time each day at a time that works well for you. Uh, you know your your nutrition around training is is in a good spot. Your sleep is regular and it's of high quality. Um, stress levels aren't through the roof. Yeah, you're you're probably a good candidate for recomposition in that uh, in that scenario. But um, <laughs> I'll speak for people that I work with they're all very ambitious people and they have a lot of things going on, whether they're pursuing higher education or just trying to crush it in their career, whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, lifting is, is a big part of who they are, but it's not everything. And, and they, they need to balance that to some degree. So I almost view it as an insurance policy of, you know, obviously you should always do your best to dial those variables in, but you know, to, to kind of ensure that, that things move in the right direction, uh, being in a detectable surplus, uh, can go a long way. And go. I agree. Cool. cool. Um, all right. Should we give caveats galore here? Yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah, yeah not probably. a bad idea. To I feel like I've been speaking with, with. I feel like I've been speaking with too much. Uh, I don't know what the word is. Gusto. Convi- yeah, conviction. Too much conviction. No, no I, um, I think I think you've been doing a good job. It's it's tough. Like the the one thing I was going to ask um, that I think helps to conceptualize the limitations is. Okay, you've you've looked at this extremely closely. Um, what what do we not have? What what's the what's the the research design and just the general source of data you're looking for to help us kind of clear up the biggest questions and the biggest limitations of the work that we do have? Um, what, what's that study look like, or what does that series of studies look like to help kind of tie up some loose ends here and make sure that we're properly understanding the things that we think to be true based on these line of evidence and some assumptions that we talked about based on measurement error and, and obviously filtering in our own experience um, to cover the gaps where applicable. But I, I think that helps to paint the picture of, yeah, we just talked about, you know, our interpretation and and how we can kind of use that to guide practice as of now, but to really be confident in those conclusions and probably take it more on the affirmative side rather than the cautiously optimistic side of things, which is, I think we're kind of where we're at right now. Um, what, what are you looking for? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
A paper that comes to mind for me is one that I haven't seen talked about a ton or cited a ton, um, probably because there weren't any like flashy findings, <laughs> uh, as it typically goes. It's from uh, Smith and colleagues, I think from 2020 or 2021. And I really like this approach, and I think this will give us a lot of good insights, um, is more or less making it uh, these variables continuous. Um, and being able to see, okay, when someone is in X degree of energy surplus, so maybe maybe a high energy surplus versus low versus maintenance versus moderate deficit versus uh, a large deficit, essentially making that a continuous variable, seeing the outcomes, and then kind of back calculating predictors on an individual level for what led to the best body composition or strength improvements. Um, and that's what this study from Smith uh, did I'm not going to talk about the findings necessarily because um, it was a pretty small sample size, and I don't think there's really much to go over or in terms of takeaways that we haven't already talked about. Um, but that study design really comes to mind for me because there are some serious limitations in terms of, uh, especially when you don't have have the means to put everybody in a metabolic ward and uh, control their um, their rate of gain very precisely. Is probably give people rough guidelines and then just kind of say, okay, where they end up is where they end up. And then we can back calculate predictors and we can see that, okay, eventually we see this, uh, the benefit of an energy surplus to kind of plateau or diminishing returns really set in on average. Um, but, oh, they didn't do it for this individual. So that's another caveat. Um, so that's what comes to mind for me. And then I would also say, uh, just getting more and more individual data, I think is helpful. So like, that's why that uh, study on the rugby players was helpful. And it gave us some additional insights that could have been gained from other studies if we had the, the individual data. And I think that's the direction things are going, which is awesome. Um, the other obvious one is just a replication of that Rosnick study, but in trained individuals. I thought that was a really good design. The energy surplus was pretty extreme. I was like 2000 calories. Um, but yeah, basically, if we want to answer the question of, hey, is, is long-term weight maintenance versus an energy surplus, what, like how much better is the muscle growth if at all um, in trained individuals? Um, yeah, just go ahead and test that directly. That'd be kind of uh, my answer. Three, three parts there. Um, can, you, can you describe the Smith study just a little bit more, just because I'm not super familiar with, with that one in terms of like how the, how the design worked, just so I can totally understand what you're saying. I, I think what you said is just kind of it sounded like more of like an observational type thing where you're basically telling people yeah. to do certain things, but then, like you said, on the back end, you know, maybe you told somebody to enter a 500 calorie surplus, but in reality mm -hmm. they were only in a 300 calorie surplus. And then ultimately looking at those relationships between what the individual did and the ultimate, uh, their change and body composition. So basically I would assume just a higher sample and just, ultimately taking a shotgun approach in terms of trying to observe as many people as possible and try to get some information on those overall relationships. Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. they were basically, I think the word they used is encouraged in the manuscript. They were encouraged to gain uh, 0.45 kilograms per week. Um, and they were given like, a, I think a mass gainer shake uh, that was like 650 calories or so daily. Um, and I believe they had them come and train in the lab three sessions per week. And they basically looked at the outcomes of interest. If I recall correctly, it was kind of like a, um, it was like the change in fat-free mass over the change in body mass times 100. So basically, okay, most people are going to gain weight if we tell them to, and we give them additional calories. Um, but not everyone's going to hit that head on. So we can essentially, um, we can essentially like back calculate and say, what were predictors of the best kind of ratio of fat-free mass uh, to changes in body mass. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I guess. Um, yeah, I d just, just I'm thinking about this on the spot. The really cool thing would be, <laughs> this is just obviously armchair researcher, um, never done a nutrition study, probably never will. Sounds like a nightmare, <laughs> but um, some sort of crossover component where you have the same person doing multiple dietary strategies would be super yeah. interesting as well. Yeah, I'm looking um, at my notes on this paper. And I, I kind of wrote as like, one of the reasons I don't think they necessarily noted any meaningful predictors in terms of the outcomes of interest is that with nutrition, you can't do it within subjects design. 
Um, I was recently exactly. recently looking into some of the math on how much more statistical power you have in detecting a difference with a within subjects design versus a parallel groups design. And it's pretty crazy mm-hmm. um, how much more statistical power you had. I can't remember the sample size of this study off the top of my head, but um, seeing if I have it here, I don't. But it was it was relatively small. So that was probably the reason and we couldn't thing, get a ton from it. Yeah, but a crossover design is the next best option in that case. And the thing with nutrition studies is like you were saying, like you can't really assign people to groups because adherence is essentially it's so difficult to make sure people actually adhere to nutritional protocols if you're not giving yeah. them all of their meals. And that's why I liked um, that's why I liked that the outcomes of interest were treated as continuous variables in this mm-hmm. case. Yeah. Right. It's not like they had one group they told to gain really fast, one group to gain really slow. They just yeah. had everyone gain uh, attempt to gain at a certain rate, right. but they knew there was going to be a spread there, yeah. which I thought so was I, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, cool. Um, the only other thing I had to talk about you, just because I've I've heard this chatter, one might say, um, when we're coming back to kind of the recomp stuff about increasing protein intake and how that may be a strategy to increase the likelihood in which recomposition would happen. Do you have any thoughts on that based on what you've read? Yeah. I mean, I definitely understand why people come to that conclusion, but I wouldn't be confident in necessarily recommending it. So the studies that saw probably the most, one one of the most convincing recomposition studies, in my opinion, and I believe it was his dissertation study was from, uh, was by Cody Hahn. And, um, I think the design was like a graded whey protein uh, supplement study and the, and, and, and they were strong. It's I think they took and volume, I believe, right? Like yeah. the, the protein increase with the volume. Exactly. So, uh, they were pretty strong. If I recall correctly, I think they reported three rep max, uh, strength, but I did like some basic, whatever bodybuilding.com calculations. And I think on average, uh, like that would lead to the, uh, the relative strength being like 1.7 times body mass um, for that cohort in terms of one rep max strength, which is pretty dang good in in the research. So they're pretty well-trained individuals and they did see a good amount of recomposition in the higher protein groups. I think there were two groups that had like higher average protein intakes, if I recall correctly. Um, And I'm, I'm trying to quickly look at the, the, uh, the average daily protein intake in those, but I just remember it was high. I just remember it was high. Um, and they saw recomp there and that's probably the most trained cohort we've seen recomposition in. So that's, that's one point in the column for high protein intakes. Another, and this is probably the most like kind of jaw dropping recomposition study is by Antonio and colleagues. Um, and they had a group that ate very high protein. Um, I think it was like an additional 500 calories per day. And they lost significantly more uh, fat mass than the group that uh, I believe they didn't have additional uh, protein. So um, that was that's kind of like the the study I think a lot of people point to is that Antonio study. But um, this is where the control aspect really comes in. Um, I don't think that was tightly controlled enough to know for sure that, hey, they were all in an energy surplus and it all came directly from the additional protein. And that's literally the only difference. So I would take that with a grain of salt. And uh, this definitely isn't something that like I feel very, very confident in uh, in knowing the ins and outs of the research. But from what I've seen, I would say I would I would say it's interesting. Um, additional like very high protein intakes potentially being uh, advised when looking to kind of pursue body recomposition, but I don't think, you know, I, I, I don't like so, some of these, some of these findings are just like almost too good to be true, um, on that front. Nice. Yeah. That's, uh, pretty much all I got, man. Uh, Sweet. I thought you did an awesome job and yeah, this is just a interesting area of research to, uh, definitely keep an eye on. I think, like you mentioned, I think, um, just some of our conversations about this and just, you know, talking about it while we're training and stuff about, as you mentioned, and I think looking back, um, both on personal and coaching experience as well, like, I think that word predictability of progress is just ultimately what I come back to from a practical perspective is that 
purely just going off that anecdote, like it does seem to be related of when people are intentional with nutrition and really try to get those variables aligned in some way and try to knock the dominoes in their favor in terms of being in a surplus most of the time. That seems to lead to favorable outcomes. And I think that overall this evidence would tend to lean in that direction, but there's definitely some remaining questions to be answered. And I'm sure, I believe I know some people that are working on projects to help kind of muddy this up a little bit. I mean, not not muddy it up, hopefully, to make it a little clearer opposite direction there. Um, cool. Yeah, man, go ahead and close yeah. it up. And and I think that's a good time to plug in because because you mentioned predictability. I could see the opposite argument that maintenance is actually more predictable, and and I do think there is a point there because you don't have to go through these different cycles or these different phases. But I and 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 Zach might have a slightly different perspective on this, but I think the most evidence based recommendation and just kind of the general approach I would take in practice is a a pretty dang slow rate of weight gain. Um. So there's three studies that give some indication, one from Garth from 2013, one from, I believe, Ribeiro from 2019, and then also that Smith paper we just spent a good amount of time discussing from 2021. Those all point in the direction that the ratio of muscle to fat gain is considerably more favorable when the rate of gain is slower. Uh, I, I should use considerably with a little bit less confidence because that Ribeiro study, the, the stats are a little bit interesting. Um, but nonetheless, there's definitely some indication that there's definitely diminishing returns with a, a faster surplus. So our general approach would be to maximize the time spent in a surplus, but you have to balance that with making it detectable. So this is going to be pretty individual de dependent in terms of how slow is detectable. Um, so as long as it's detectable, I think it can be pretty dang slow. And then that's just kind of your default state, in my opinion, is just to hang out in a surplus, again, I'll circle back to that caveat I mentioned at the very beginning that we're kind of putting weight class restriction aside. Um, we're also, you know, there's a ton that goes into nutrition beyond just our kind of uh, tunnel vision discussion on body composition right now. But I'll kind of acknowledge that this is a very, you know, kind of tunnel vision uh, discussion because preferences feed into this, um, you know, socioeconomic considerations, etc. Right. Um, but um, a slower rate of gain can just kind of be the default case. And then you clean up body composition when you need to, and you can be pretty dang efficient with that. Um, so, you know, that that's where I think you can really get into the the consistency aspect. And then if you're nice and efficient with the, the, the fat loss phase, I think progress can absolutely still continue. Um, but yeah, I, I lean into preferences. And like, also if you're doing well with maintenance right now, and you're, you're, you're seeing progress, then there's probably no need to change your approach. But, um, I guess our general approach would just for, would just be for uh, a small surplus to kind of be the default state. Um, and that can kind of lead to a good amount of consistency. So with that, Zach, y'all good. Cool. We appreciate you all tuning in again, make sure you are signed up to the newsletter list to make sure you get, uh, future issues. Got some good stuff uh, coming up here soon. We'll send a uh, quick takeaway every single, every other week, every other Tuesday to you guys. And then there'll, of course, be uh, kind of a longer article below that so you can get some additional context. Um, so, yeah, thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.